Hi there. Welcome back to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. What gets you up in the morning? Is it your desire to achieve something, to grow, or to learn? Well, far from being simple human instincts, these desires really reveal what is on the thrones of our lives, what controls us and motivates us to action. Today, Eric speaks and gives us a look at an epic battle between two gods and how the true God demonstrated that he alone is worthy to sit on the throne of our lives. Hey, everyone. How's it going? It's really hot today, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That means uh, summer is, is upon us, and... What that means is, yeah, this semester's almost over. Um, that also means USC football is right around the corner. Are you guys excited? No? Wow. Not what I was expecting. Um, hopefully you're somewhat excited, um, because if you haven't found out yet, we hired a new head coach. This picture is going to be up there. Lincoln Riley. Now, there's his resume. It's a pretty impressive resume, I would say. Um, if you looked at all the different you know, coaches who were available this coaching cycle, I would perhaps even argue that he was the most qualified coach to, to take the job. So hopefully you're excited, at least for something new. Um, I think the season will be pretty good. I guess we'll see. But again, no, no one can argue, I think, that he is not a qualified coach. But imagine an alternate universe where instead of hiring Lincoln Riley, we instead hired this person. You guys have the power. Just call Carol Folt, and we can make it happen. But uh, as you can see from my football resume, um, I'm not quite as qualified as Lincoln Riley to be our head coach. Sorry. And, and I think uh, the reality is if they hired me as coach, you would all be not cheering but, but furious and maybe run me out of town or something. Um, because for something as important as USC football, which I think we can all agree is pretty important, uh, we only want the most qualified person leading the team. Right? That makes sense. And that's true, I think, for many other things in life. For example, your professors, you want the most qualified person teaching your class. You don't want to learn economics or, or writing or engineering or whatever from someone who's not qualified. Sorry, I see you economics over there. Um, you know, you want someone qualified teaching you those things. The same is true when you get a job. You're going to want the most qualified person to, to lead you in your job. You want the most qualified boss, right? Makes sense. But then why is it, for the most important thing, the thing that's actually running our very lives, we so often choose what is unqualified. Definitely not the most qualified. I mean, think about it. We choose things like your career aspirations, money, your parents, peer pressure, culture, uh, to really (laughs) make the decisions in our life. And when you really get down to the core of it, we choose ourselves to run our own lives, to make the final calls in life. Are you qualified to do that? You know, are you the best choice to run your own life? I have another resume of myself up here. This is my resume for running my own life. The start looks pretty good. A lot of experience. As you get to the bottom, it doesn't look quite as good. That's okay, because people only spend like 30 seconds on resumes. They won't get that far. Um, here's another resume, though, for another candidate. I clearly just am not qualified, right? You know, I can't claim any of those things, not even close. And neither are you qualified to make the final calls in your life compared to God. You know, only he is 
worthy of that. Only he is worthy to sit on the throne of our lives. He created you. He knows you. He's all-loving, all-wise, all of these things, holy. He's the only one who has the right. And if you want that abundant life that we hear about in Scripture that Jesus talks about, <laughs> the only way to do that is to have the perspective, the worldview, right, that Jesus is the one, God is the one who belongs on the throne. We've been going through a series in Challenge about worldview and the things that shape your worldview. Last week, we talked about truth. Um, next week, Ian's going to talk about identity, but today we're talking about the throne of your life. And what I mean, just to be clear when I say throne of your life, is what is it or who is it going to be to make the final calls in your life? When that thing says go right, you go right every single time, no matter what. So, for example, if you, when you're making decisions and going through life, you think, well, I'm going to do whatever is best for my career, well, your career will be on the throne of your life. If you say, I'm going to do whatever is cheapest each and every time, well, then money would be on the throne of your life. And if you say, I'm going to do whatever is best for me, or what I think is best for me, you would be on the throne of your life. But again, if you look at the resumes of all those things, money, career, you know, money can't save your soul. Career can't give you deep, lasting satisfaction. You are not all wise and all powerful, no matter what you think. Only God has those qualifications. And so logically, if we follow that line of reasoning, it should make total sense for us to put God on the throne each and every time. And what might that look like? Well, there's a couple things. You know, you would probably relate to him as he is. He is God. We are not. Acknowledging that, um, you would probably live your life to, to glorify him in everything you do. You would live to do his will in everything you do. And, you know, you would sur surrender every aspect of your life to him. That's what it looks like to put God on the throne. Now, I don't think anyone here who is a genuine Christian, you know, someone who has acknowledged that they are sinful and need the sacrifice of Jesus to, to pay for that sin, they are deserving of death, but, you know, put the trust in Jesus, cannot save themselves, all of that, the gospel, believes in that truly. I don't think anyone who's, who's like that would say, well, I think I can run my life better. You know, Christians, we don't, we don't say that out loud, at least. You know, if we had a pop quiz tonight and I said, you know, who, who should you put on the throne of your life? Money, uh, your parents, challenge staff, or God— you'd all get it right, right? Challenge staff. No, I'm just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. It's God, right? The, the answer is obvious to us. We all know that intellectually. Knowledge is not the problem here. But if you think about your life, do you always have God on the throne? I don't. You know, I struggle with that. You see, I, I think plenty of times that even as a believer, you know, I decide to make myself sit on the throne or money or career or all these different things. You see, I think the problem is in our worldview, in our hearts, we think that the throne has two seats. You know, God's up there, but I'm up there too. Maybe I'm a little lower on the throne, but I'm in there, and hey, God doesn't need to be looped in on everything. I can make some calls. You know, ah, there's something I don't like. I'll just take care of this one, God. Don't worry about it. The throne has two seats. But when you look at the Bible, which is reality, as we talked about last week, it says this in Matthew 6, 24, about the throne. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the context of this passage is money. Jesus is saying this. But it's very clear, right? You cannot serve two masters. The throne has just one seat. And so that means if you're thinking to yourself, well, God makes some of the calls and I make some of the others, God actually is not on the throne you are. And that never ends well for us. We're not qualified to be up there. So tonight, we're going to take a look at a story from 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, the context of this story is Israel at this point has split into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom where our story takes place, there's a king named Ahab. And if you look back in 1 Kings chapter 16, you actually find that he is described as the most evil king, the one who did the most to provoke God to anger. Not a title I want. 
But that's who Ahab was. And he was that because he brought to Israel the worship of Baal, who's this false god idol. There's a picture, a couple of pictures of depictions of Baal throughout history. Imposing looking fellow there. Um, Baal was the, a, a fertility god, a storm god. Uh, the people believed that he brought rain. Um, when they saw lightning, they thought of Baal, like, oh, there he is in the lightning. Um, so they were worshiping Baal. In addition to this, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, had killed many of the prophets of God, the true, excuse me, the true God. And the other ones were hiding out of fear. It's just not a, not a good time in the kingdom. You know, Israel has placed Baal, this idol, on the throne instead of God. And as judgment, God has brought about a drought that has lasted for three and a half years. Um, if you look and remember from James chapter 5 when it talks about Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain, that's this period that we're looking at tonight. It's kind of ironic that they go to worship a, a storm god and it's not raining, right? There's one prophet of God remaining who's active, that's Elijah. And so God calls Elijah to go confront the people, and he brings all the people to this mountain, Mount Carmel. So the whole nation is up there, the kings, um, prophets of Baal, so these false prophets, they all gather up there, and we're going to pick up the story there in 1 Kings 18, verse 20, and see how this went for Israel and what we can learn from it. So we're going to start in verse 20 and 21, and it says, Ahab, so again the king, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So you see here, Elijah challenges the people. And he uses a word that's actually pretty rare in the Bible, in the Hebrew. Limping, it's translated as here. You might see waver in your translation. But the idea is it's painting a word picture of just someone who's kind of, you know, struggling to move, struggling to get through life, not fully functioning as they go back and forth between these two different opinions. The idea is that they are limping through their lives because they don't have the right one on the throne. You know, sometimes maybe they follow God. Sometimes they follow Baal, this, this idol, but they keep going back and forth. And so Elijah has a great solution, I think. Just pick one. You ought to follow who is really God. Again, that totally makes sense, right? And so he says, hey, if, if Baal, this, this idol, is really God, you ought to follow him. I would agree. It's just another way of saying, right, we ought to have the most qualified thing on the throne of our lives. And we can re uh, replace Baal with anything that tempts us, right? If your career is God, I would tell you from up here, follow your career 100%. That would make total sense. If your career could save your soul, if your career could give you lasting you know, satisfaction, if your career was holy, all these things, you should follow it. You know, if, if you are God, if you have all those things, you should follow yourself. I would agree with that. Elijah would agree with that. But if the Lord is God, which I think he is, we ought to follow him. Now, the people are quiet. Why are they quiet? Well, at this time, you know, in history, there's a lot of gods that people are following and thinking that they, they are real. So the question is, well, how will we know? How do we know which one is God? It's a valid question. So this is what Elijah proposes. Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So there's 450 prophets versus Elijah in this story. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. <laughs> so he proposes this contest. Again, a great solution, I think. This would be primetime television today, right? Which God is going to answer by consuming these offerings that we put on the idol? Um, we see in the next verses what starts to happen. Uh, yeah, and Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, uh, oh, sorry, 
Oh, yeah, this is the right one, sorry. Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, long time, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. From morning until noon, for literally hours, they're crying out to Baal, please, please, you know, answer with fire. Take this, take this um, offering that we've given. And there's that word again, right, limping. And scholars believe this word here is referring to a ritualistic dance they're kind of performing around this altar, 450 of them, right, dancing around this altar, just trying to get Baal to answer. Now, can you imagine how foolish and, and odd this would have looked, you know, screaming, crying to the sky, dancing, limping around this altar for hours and hours and hours when no one is answering and no one is paying attention. I, I don't think it's coincidence that this word limping is used here again, this rare word that hardly appears in the Bible twice in the same passage. I think God is trying to link up for us as the reader. This is what limping through life looks like. This is what it looks like when you don't have the right one on the throne. Right? Their worldview is so warped that they're literally, for hours, calling out to something that doesn't even exist. So as we said last week, people do what makes sense to them, and because they have the wrong thing on the throne, this makes sense to them. Odd, isn't it? Elijah is watching this in his right mind, and he starts kind of poking fun at them a little bit. In verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now, why is this in here? Seems like a silly passage, right? I really think this is in here just to further highlight just the absolute impotence of Baal, right? This is supposed to be the god who controls storms and thunder and gives life to the people, and here's puny little Elijah mocking him, saying he's sitting on a toilet somewhere instead of answering them. Like, he should hurl a lightning bolt down and just fry Elijah, right? But he doesn't. He's impotent. He has no power. He's unqualified to sit on any throne. I think this is also here to just highlight, again, how crazy their worldview has become. Right? To us in our, in our right minds, this is it's ridiculous what they're doing. It's laughable to them. It makes total sense. And they even go on in verses 28 29, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation in the evening sometime. There was no voice, and no one answered, and no one paid attention. It's a, it's a chilling passage, I think. Again, imagine just how um, horrible this scene is. These people are screaming, crying, slicing themselves open. Blood is everywhere. For hours, hours, till the evening, morning till evening, crying out to a God that is not even there. And they're just limping, limping, limping. Now, let's take a step back from this story for a second, because I imagine a lot of you are thinking, very interesting, not the most relatable. You know, I've, I was performing this ritual just yesterday. I need to stop, you know. No one is thinking that. I get it. This seems very foreign to us in our modern experience, this pagan worship, religious frenzy, offering on idols, and so you might be asking, what is going on here? How could not one of the 450 people just whisper to his buddy, I don't think he's there. You know, no one says that. They just keep going and going. How could they do this for hours and hours? Well, I would say, I know people who've done this for years. I know people who've done this for years, not physically, not actually walking around an altar and cutting themselves, but in their hearts. Because you see, what is actually going on here, what's behind this frenzy and this pagan ritual and all this stuff is that these people are wagering everything everything that Baal is God. By putting Baal on the throne of their life, they're saying, Baal, I trust you to give me the best life 
possible. And you know, I know people today who are wagering everything that their career is God, everything that money is God, everything that they are God. That if they just make the right decisions, they can figure their life out and make it work. If they just have the right, you know, luck and career, everything's going to be great and perfect. Unknowing, or refusing to admit maybe, that they're just as impotent as Baal is here. You know, we aren't, we aren't dancing around altars, but we do limp through life whenever we put something else on the throne other than God. I think a lot of times we are just like these people, again, in our hearts. And again, you can see how warped this worldview is, right? For them, screaming, crying, just to a God that doesn't exist. And for us, how for years and years we can think we're smarter and more clever and more capable than the God who created us and holds our soul in his hands, the only one who can save us. The throne has one seat, just one. And there's only one who's qualified to sit on it. And to choose anyone else or even consider anyone else is to limp through life, just like these people. Um, We'll read on now, verses 30 to 35. Elijah said to all the people, remember, everyone is watching this. The whole nation is watching this unfold. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built up an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as as would contain two seahs of seed. The sea is about seven liters. Um, Next slide. We see 33, 35, and he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with uh, water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. If you're a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, you know that water and fire don't mix. And this altar now is literally soaking wet. Why? Well, it's making it so that there's no question only a supernatural event, only a supernatural fire could, could light this thing up. We read on. At the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Someone answered that time. Someone was paying attention. And just everything, even the dust, just gone. There's, There's not much to say to that, right? God showed them his resume. God showed them his qualifications. And you can see the reaction instantly, every single person on their face, because they realize that there's only one God, and only he is qualified. That's a great story. I love this story. What can we learn from this story? The first thing we can learn is we have a choice, right? The throne has one seat, just like Elijah said in verse 21, we cannot follow God in ourselves or God in career, God and money. There is no and. It's not God and something on the throne. It's God or. Or is the key word. You choose. And so we need to choose the one that is, again, most qualified. And hopefully by this story, you realize the answer to that. It is God himself who's most qualified to sit on your throne. And again, what does that mean to actually have that? Well, again, you relate to God for who he is. He is God. You are not. You seek to glorify him with your life. You seek to do his will in all things. And you surrender fully every aspect to him because he is the king. So first, we have a choice to make. Who is going to be on our throne? 
The second thing is we need to be reminded a lot of God's power and his right and his qualifications for the throne. You see, we have a choice, but it's not a one-time decision. It's something that we have to decide again and again and again. This was a, an amazing display, right? Could you imagine being here? You would say, I would never forget this. But Israel forgot this, and they returned later on in their history back to idol worship again. They took God off the throne again. There's another, there's another story. There's plenty of stories about this, but there's another one um, in Exodus, right, where God leads the people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and does these amazing things. The ten plagues, he literally parts the Red Sea. And again, you think, wow, these people would never forget that. And then they end up at uh, Mount Horeb, and they make an idol. Just like this again. This is what it says in Psalm 106, giving us insight into what's going on in that part of the, the story. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God. After everything they had just saw, forgot him. Their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. <laughs> so often we see in Scripture, Israel is reminded of this. Hey, remember, I am God. Remember when I brought you out of Egypt? Over and over again. And sometimes I look at that and I think, you idiots. Like, how could you forget this again and again and again? But then I actually look at that and I think, that is me too, because I forget again and again and again. And I need to be reminded of what God has done in my life and God's qualifications that he has shown to me. We need reminding of this. We need to remember what God has done and remember his right to the throne. Uh, we see an example of this actually in 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is right after God has helped the people win this great battle against the Philistines. And Samuel, a different prophet, does this. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, two locations, and he called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. So he literally places a rock out there so that every time people pass it, they would remember, oh yes, we remember when God helped us through this. And so what I would say to you is have Ebenezer's, have stones of help in your life to remind you that life is so much better with God on the throne. I don't know what that might be for you. Maybe it's a visual reminder you have. Maybe you like paste a, you know, a verse on your mirror. Maybe you have a little drawing of a throne somewhere. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's a physical thing like praying on your knees to remind yourself God is the king. I am not. What I do, something that I found has been very helpful is just I have several key stories that I can reference that I think about a lot, I pray through a lot. Just times that I can look back in my life where I had God on the throne, things went really well, and also stories where I didn't have God on the throne and things didn't go too well. That's kind of my contest, right? I can't tell my career, produce fire. You know, I can't do that, but I can look at these stories. <laughs> I don't even know what that would look like. But I can produce stories and think about these things, you know? And I want them to be fresh, so I journal, you know, I tell others about these stories. Um, but they're very helpful for me just to look back and remember, ah, yes, I remember. This is why I need to have God on the throne. So first, we have a choice to make. The throne has only one seat. Second, we have to maintain that. We have to be reminded of God's power, his past history with us, and how he's been faithful. And the last thing I think this story shows us is that we need to realize that in this, we need God's help. This isn't something that you just try harder at. We really need God working in our lives to make this possible. There's a tiny little detail in verse 37. See if you catch it. Elijah's praying right, right before the, the fire comes. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. God did that. God was working in their hearts. He turned their hearts back. This is the grace of God in their lives. We need God's help to do this. This isn't something we do alone. 
So I really would encourage you, be praying every single day, God, please open my heart to you. God, please be working in my heart so that I can genuinely say I want you on the throne, so I can genuinely put you there. This is exactly why Jesus, when he's teaching uh, the people to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he starts with this. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? God is only qualified to sit on the throne. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? It's a prayer. God, please just remind me of this truth and help me to live it out. So we need to decide. We need to make a choice. We need to maintain that choice, and we really need to pray for God's help because we need it to actually do this consistently and genuinely. So I would encourage you to, to start doing these things because there there's a lot at stake with this. Your, your answer to this choice will determine the outcome of your life. Let's look at the end of the story in 1 Kings. Elijah said to them again, right after the fire has licked everything up and the people are on their face, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of the rushing of rain. Literally, life and death is at stake here. Right? These are two very, very distinct endings for the two groups in this story. Because of the choice that the prophets of Baal made, they lost their lives. They were limping all throughout life, and then they died. Right? So the wages of sin is death. You know, God executed his judgment on them, and they died. They lost their lives because they didn't put him on the throne. But because of the choice of Israel, turning back to God, putting him back on the throne, they got their lives back. It starts to rain. If you read on the story, you see that it starts to rain. Now, remember, this is a farming society, right? They needed rain. They're in the middle of a three-and-a-half-year drought. This brought them literally back to life. If you go back into 1 Kings chapter 17, you can see how dire it was. But by going back to God, returning to him, putting him back on the throne, they found blessing. They were restored to life. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 9 when he tells the people this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it, right? Whoever would put himself on the throne himself is going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, putting God on the throne, will save it, right? The only way to live life, the only way to get life, is by giving up our claim to the throne and recognizing the one who has the valid claim to it, God himself, Jesus Christ. And not just once, but as this passage says, Every single day, daily reminding ourselves that God is in control and relying on him to help us do that and follow him. You see, I think this highlights something that we cannot miss with this whole idea about throne and, and the worldview. It's, it's something that I think ties this whole idea together. God is the most qualified to sit on the throne, not only because he is so powerful and can make fire rain down from heaven, not only because he created us, but also because he loves us. He loves us. He wants to restore us and bless us. He wants to give us life. He doesn't want you to limp. He wants you to thrive. But he knows that the only way for you to do that is by trusting him and putting him on the throne. You see, God is not some cruel dictator who's way up here on this throne looking down at us peasants, you know, and I'm going to give you all these crazy rules that you're going to have to follow and you're just going to be miserable. That's not who God is. Sometimes I struggle thinking that. You know, I struggle with that a lot. I have this fear sometimes that truly following God, truly putting him on the throne, literally surrendering everything, I'm just going to live this miserable life, but I guess I got to do it because, you know, God is God, I agree. That's not the picture at all. You know, God wants us to have an abundant life, a joyful life. His commands are not burdensome, not at all. They give us life. It's a lot like USC football. 
and Coach Riley. You see, no one, no one is going to practice like, oh, I guess we'll follow Coach. Like, no one is thinking that. They are happy to follow him. Why? Why is that? Because they know he wants what's best for them. They want to win a championship. He wants them to win a championship. Why not? You know? <laughs> but see, the players realize that they cannot get there without the coach. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the knowledge to win a championship. They don't know what they're doing. They need the coach, and so they joyfully submit to him, even on things that they probably don't want to do, like practice twice a day or run the same play over and over and over again. They do it willingly and joyfully because they trust the coach, and they know that the coach can get them where they really want to go. And you see, the same is true with God. We all want to live the best life possible, right? We all want that. God wants that for you, too. And so we need to humble ourselves and realize that the only way to get there is with God on the throne, because he's the only one qualified to get us there. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the strength. You know, we can't do that, but God can and wants to. He wants to. And if you realize that, I, I think submitting to God can be something that fills us with joy and excitement. You know, it's a great thing that we get to do this. And so my hope for you tonight is that you realize, one, yes, God belongs on the throne of my life. He is the only one qualified by far. May that just become deeply, deeply woven into your worldview, but also may that fill you with joy and excitement. You know, our king is, is a wonderful, beautiful king. He wants to give us life, and submitting to him is a wonderful, joyful thing because we know he loves us. He loves us, and he wants what's best for us. So to close tonight, I'm going to leave you guys with Psalm 100. It's this beautiful picture, I think, of a of a community of believers who has really acknowledged God is king, God belongs on the throne, and the joy that comes with that. And my prayer is that this community, Christian Challenge, can become just like that, you know, a group of believers who are joyfully submitting to God, putting him on the throne consistently and relying on his help to do that. So let's read Psalm 100 and we'll pray. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm very humbled by this. I'm very thankful that we can know this is true, that you love us and you want what's best for us. I pray, God, that you would, you would really humble us and help us to realize we are nowhere near qualified to sit on the throne. We do not belong there. Only you do. Thank you, God, that I am not God, that I am not you, because I would be lousy at that. I'm so grateful that I have you, God, to guide my life. I pray, God, that you would help every single person in this room to consistently do that. Please, God, work in our hearts, that we may be able to genuinely say, you are God, you are in control. And God, I pray that that would fill us with a bunch of joy. So thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you for this wonderful community you've given us. We love you so much, Lord. We praise you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Music, where you can also leave us a review. This episode was recorded live on a Thursday night gathering at the University of Southern California. And we'd love to, for you to join us if you are in the area. So get involved and find out more about us, upcoming events, and our weekly small groups on Instagram at USC Challenge and on our website, uscchristianchallenge.com.